What if you hated the idea of Peter Pan? Then learn that your very skin sheds the fairy dust you need for traveling to Neverland. That is the magical start of Kara Swanson's Heirs of Neverland series, which began last year with the fantasy novel Dust. That book just won three Realm Awards last July, and today Kara Swanson herself flies into our window and helps guide us to fantastical truth. Welcome anew to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com in which we find the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond, and we apply the meanings of these stories to the real world that our author, Jesus Christ, calls us to serve. I am E. Stephen Burnett, and I publish lorehaven.com. I'm also the co-author of a non-fiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I never wanted to grow up and always be a boy. In fact, I still kind of do. And this is episode 78, What If You Discovered Fairy Dust and Peter Pan Were Real? We'll be talking about the Heirs of Neverland series with author Kara Swanson. This is a new interpretation of Neverland. I think a lot of us have grown up with the uh, the original Disney version. Disney went and sort of uh, appropriated Peter Pan, and suddenly it becomes a Disney character. It's a Disney universe from the 1950s onward. We're all uh, Disney characters yeah, now. Yeah, well, that's true. It. That is true, unfortunately. Uh, the, the Mouse Borg is assimilating us all. Uh, however, <laughs> that doesn't mean that it's a bad movie. You know, apart from some insensitive materials that require the disclaimer on Disney Plus and all of that, I'm still a big fan of Peter Pan. It's probably... One of my favorite Disney films, and of course, Captain Hook being one of my favorite Disney villains with the uh, with the incomparable voicing by Hans Conrad. Oddsfish! And just what do you think you're doing, Mr. Smee? I just love his delivery, and I think that I can actually impersonate it. So before we fly away to Neverland, we need to give a nod to our sponsor once again for this episode. Uh, the returning champ, A.J. Chamberlain's thriller novel, Kane's Redemption. This is a new story released by A.J. Chamberlain. It's the sequel to previous sponsor, Urban Angel. Here's the plot description for this thriller. Winning the battle is not the same as winning the war. Alex Masters is pursuing her dreams and Daisy has overcome her demons, but the enemy does not rest and he is desperate to atone for his mistakes. Out of that desperation, a new plan emerges that is fashioned to exploit the weaknesses of his opponents. But even as the enemy's plans unfold, so does the potential for love. This love may fulfill its destiny, but first it must survive. And for that to happen, there must be redemption. That's the description. And one reviewer of Urban Angel, book one in this series, said, I was so immersed in this book, I felt I was there walking every step with the characters. It made me think about my Christian faith and the way in which God is always nearby. I cannot recommend this book highly enough and eagerly await book two in the series. Well, that book is now released. It released on September the 3rd, available as a paperback and an ebook, Kane's Redemption. You can find more information at our new page for podcast sponsors, lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. And we will link to that in the show notes. I'm looking forward to talking with Kara. Uh, she was at the Realm Makers Conference. Uh, we invited her then on the podcast, but we knew we already wanted to get her onto the show. Uh, we actually reviewed her book, Dust released back in summer of 2020. And uh, Lorehaven, we reviewed that in the fall 2020. Here is what our reviewer said, quote, Kara Swanson's dust shares the magical story of Claire, a girl who hates Peter Pan, but who may be the key to saving Neverland. Because of Peter Pan, Claire's brother is missing. In London, she meets a boy who helps her discover truths about herself and the strange and powerful dust that sheds from her skin. Her dust may not be the curse she always thought, it may be exactly what she needs to find her brother. 
She must evade pirates and rogue lost boys and learn whom to trust. Nothing is as it seems, and Wishing on Stars will get her nowhere in this delightfully twisted sequel to a classic. End quote, and you can read the rest of that review. We'll have the link in our show notes for this episode. We think it's best for young adults as well as fans of fairy tale retellings and sequels to classics. Now Kara Swanson is uh, knocking out our window, actually. Uh, And is that a floating pirate ship I see shimmering in the night sky? Here is Kara's bio. As the daughter of missionaries, Kara Swanson spent her childhood running barefoot through the lush jungles of Papua New Guinea. Able to relate with characters dropped into a unique new world, she quickly fell in love with the fantasy genre. Swanson is the award-winning author of The Girl Who Could See and Peter Pan retelling slash sequel Dust and Shadow from Enclave Publishing. Kara is passionate about crafting stories of light-shattering darkness, connecting with readers, and becoming best friends with a mermaid, though not necessarily in that order. Kara, thanks so much for flying into the Fantastical Truth recording booth today. Thank you so much, Stephen. You don't perchance happen to know of any nearby mermaids, do you? I have not seen any, no. Uh, the, the booth, unfortunately, is very waterproof. Uh, I don't think mermaids would find it a hospitable environment here. Uh, plus, we're all under lockdown, I think. Uh, mermaids, That's it turns true. out, are especially vulnerable to COVID, is what I've heard. That is true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah what yep. I've heard. So, Kara, how did you discover biblical faith in fantastic stories? Mm. Hi, Zach. That's such a good question. I feel like this is the most cliche, like, homeschooler answer, but... Um, <laughs> I think in a lot of ways, it did start off with C.S. Lewis for me, um, as it did for, I feel like, most people. I think that being able to find fantasy that is engaging and accessible and also conveys biblical truth in a way that's not shoehorned in and very like integrated to the overall story and feels unique and um, approaches something in a way that we haven't maybe seen before or is even more accessible to a child's mind is really amazing. Um, and so my, yeah, I, I specifically remember the very first time my dad would read aloud to us at night. Um, and I remember the very first time that he opened the line, the witch in the wardrobe, cause he gathered us all around in our bedroom. And like, um, like Steven said, I grew up overseas. And so we had this massive mosquito net that we would sit under, um, my brother and I shared a bunk bed. And so my mom like sewed this massive mosquito net to fit oh, around wow. our bunk bed. So we'd sit underneath it and he pulls out this book and it was actually, we were homeschooled because we lived in the middle of the jungle. Right. Um, and so it was one of the books that we were supposed to read for school. And he pulls it out and he looks at us and he goes, this is going to be possibly the best book besides the Bible that you will ever read. Oh, wow. um, hard what? to beat that opening. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and he's like, so pay attention basically. Um, and we did, and I just, I loved it. And I would just remember sitting there and like closing my eyes as he read and trying to visualize everything. And, um, yeah, so we read, I think he read all the Narnia books aloud to us. Um, and then just from there, any sort of fantasy, um, book that I could get my hands on, I did, um, just read, yeah, read vicariously. Um, I think there were aspects too of reading, um, that allowed me to, there's a degree, I think of just like, uh, danger in books because you have these teens that are in situations that most teens aren't in. Mm -hmm. Um, but because I grew up overseas and I grew up with a culture that was very, very, um, very oppressive, particularly to women. Um, and there was a lot of real life danger for me. Um, I was the only English speaking girl in our tribe until my little sister was born. Um, and even then, like she's a baby when I was 10. Um, and most of the girls that I was friends with that were, that were native to the village were getting married at like 13, 
14. Um, and there was a lot, just the culture was very, very, like I said, oppressive. Um, I mean, like, like self, like the men themselves would acknowledge easily that they treated their hunting dogs better than their wives. Um, and so there was just, there was a lot of abuse and neglect. And if a little boy was frustrated because his mom was telling him to move a little faster, he could pick up a stone and chuck it at her head. Um, and so there was just an awful lot of, of danger and a sense of like, be careful because if you make the wrong person angry, you'll get hurt. Um, my whole childhood and my parents did a good job of protecting me and helping me to, um, I don't know, kind of know what was safe and what wasn't. Um, but a lot of that you internalize as a kid and you don't realize. And so I think for me, it was like, not only was I growing up in a situation that was pretty um, dangerous, but also I was able to look at these characters that were going through like fantastical adventures, but also dealing with similar feelings of fear or of uncertainty or like trying to figure out how to help and how to like bring light to someplace that has a whole lot of darkness. And so I think a lot of those kind of analogies and, and similarities really um, spoke to me and it felt like a safe place to unravel some of those emotions when I didn't really know how to at the time. So that's probably a far deeper answer than you wanted, but Oh, that's exactly the type yeah. of answer I'm looking for. I'm just curious because we were mentioning earlier and we were talking about the differences between uh, types of stories that deal with mm -hmm. darkness. And we mentioned the term that a lot of fans have used called noble dark. Uh, I'm yeah. curious about, I mean, what I see is that people who have been raised in environments or cultures or just had a lot of trauma in their past tend mm -hmm. to either find some sense of healing or at least mm -hmm. some way to work out those feelings through noble dark stories that seem to mm -hmm. uh, match with their feeling. Others will go a little darker and then they'll go to grim dark. You know, there's no hope at mm -hmm. all, just darkness, darkness, no parents, you know, uh, as the uh, Lego Batman once sang. <laughs> uh, and then others, and I think understandably, uh, would just as soon escape from the darkness by either a noble bright story or just a, a happy, very predictable, mm -hmm. you know, Hallmark Channel type story. With the exception of, I think, the grimdark approach, I, I think all of those seem to make sense. But it seems like you have found a way to find, a, you know, with the Peter Pan reference here, the happy mm -hmm. thoughts uh, mm -hmm. while also recognizing the darkness in the, in the society you were talking about. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And there was a lot that was really beautiful. And because my parents were missionaries and were bringing um, just like gospel truth into the culture, it was amazing to see the transformation because as people in our tribe um, and in the, in the village got saved and began to understand the way that that um, the way that they were created equal, like this idea that men and women were created equal just blew their minds. Wow. And this idea that God loved women equally as much as he did men completely blew their minds. And so to see these men realizing like, wow, I shouldn't be treating my wife like this. And to actually see that transformation happen. And we were at the village for 16 years. Um, we lived overseas for 16 years. And so through that period of time from like I was two to I think 18, 17, 18 ish. And so throughout that period of time, watching not only the culture shift, but also the sense of value that they were giving to the women that wasn't necessarily given before. Um, and I think it's stuff like that, that really shaped and created this sense of hope, I guess, because it, it was like a real life example of you can't, the light has so much more impact and so much more um, value if you actually see where the darkness was first and you have that whole transform transformative process. Um, and so getting to watch that, um, you know, in my real life then made sense to turn around and translate that into, into my writing. And I think in terms of, um, noble dark, there's a degree to where it's like my process of translating the world is not separate from 
the pain and the suffering that I've seen and the pain and the suffering that I've gone through. And I, I have a very hard time, if maybe not even able to separate those two. And so to me, writing something that's just completely, you know, fluffy, um, while I so I do see the value in that. And I think especially for people that are needing a safe place to to step away from some of the trauma and some of the pain, um, it makes a lot of sense. But for me, um, it just it felt like that was not even a part of me in the same way. Um, and it felt like in order for me to be able to convey something that felt like it actually touched my heart and like, I don't know, the iron in, in my bones, like in order to really convey some of that, I needed to be able to dig into those places um, and to find a healthy and safe and engaging and um, vulnerable way to bring those things to the page. Um, and also to say like, hey, you know, there's a lot of us that have been through some heavy stuff and have seen suffering. And even if you weren't the one who was necessarily being oppressed in the same way, just living in a culture where you're seeing it every day, there's an impact to that. And there's a degree of just like um, heart heaviness to that. And so being willing to give a voice and give a, I guess, put some of those emotions and some of that feeling and some of the importance of that, not letting it just sit, not letting it, um, not letting it go, but giving it the importance that it deserves and being able to bring light to those truths and bring light to those experiences um, was really important to me. Now, backing up a minute, you being a missionary kid in Papua New Guinea is mm-hmm. really fun to get to talk to you because it was a video about a missionary in Papua New Guinea that I watched in college that put me on a path to being a missionary myself for a oh, few wow. years. And it was the movie, or a, a, probably a VHS at that time, it was called Etal. Yeah. And it was about this whole village that came to an understanding of the gospel this one missionary couple and they did sort of like a recreation of it where um, a- after going through the gospel and tying it back to the Old Testament, Abraham mm-hmm. and the, the mm-hmm. ram that was given as sacrifice in place of Isaac, this man just said, Etal, like it is true, I think is what it means. Mm-hmm. And in just this whole village, just the gospel just swept through there and they all came to know the Lord. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't remember a whole lot else about that story, but uh, you know, what, what I did know is that 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 couple or that family had, uh, they were no one special before that. They, it's mm-hmm. not like they were linguists, you know, they just went through training and they were just ordinary people. And it was so fascinating just to see the story of ordinary people doing this extraordinary thing because we serve an extraordinary God. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just the fact that they gave years of their life to that. And so that prompted me after college to go for a few years as a missionary. And, um, and I remember you know, getting to meet this, uh, this young man and telling him the story of the good Samaritan, like we were just going through the gospels and we got to that mm-hmm. story and he paused and he said, we do not have this idea in my country. Mm-hmm. Oh, And I just thought, you know, mm-hmm. we take that for granted, right? Like, like you said, we take it for granted that God has made men and women equal, mm-hmm. but, but we know that because we, we know the Lord and we know his truth. And yeah, for so many people, that is a story that they don't have. Mm-hmm. And so I love that you are taking the stories that have impacted you in your faith, in your, your upbringing, and you're putting those in stories. And I think you're right. A lot of people, they turn to a story to process it in what, like you said, one of two ways, either they look for a story with like, with like a simple happily ever after nothing wrong with that. Like that's what you need to get through some really scary times. Other times you want to see a character go through some really dark and troubling times. Mm-hmm. I've been watching this movie recently, San Andreas. It's just a dumb popcorn flick. Uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson flying a helicopter into Los Angeles as it's crumbling from an earthquake of like 9.2 or something, which uh, I'm sure you you've had to worry about living uh, in overseas and in California. Like yeah. earthquakes are a thing; they're not a thing here in Texas. I don't know <laughs> why, but 
just don't have to deal with that. And you know, this movie is like totally ridiculous. And you could look at that movie and think, well, what about all the other people that he could, he could have rescued with his helicopter? Why is he only rescuing that person or that person? But it's like, no, that, that movie speaks to me because it, it's like, there's this person in danger and, and calls someone, uh, for, for rescue. And then they're rescued. Like they're not abandoned. Mm-hmm. And that theme really speaks to me of just crying out amidst like total disaster and being, and being rescued, knowing that there's a God that hears us. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I'm, I'm curious, what, what are some other themes like that? What are, what are the stories you're telling that people don't already have? Like, like, like that person told me, like, we don't have that story in my culture. What are the other kinds of stories you've found that maybe we've taken for granted, or maybe we just haven't told ourselves before? Yeah, really, really good question. Going back to Etel for a second, um, I could be wrong because it's been a little while, but I'm pretty sure that actually is a video that was created by uh, our mission organization um, oh, because okay, cool. we present the gospel in the same way. So my dad spent four years learning the language and then um, basically creation to Christ um, taught all these in-depth Bible lessons and um, then just basically kind of let the people uncover biblical truths as he taught through. And then by the time they got to the gospel, it was like they had this really solid foundation. They understood, oh, that's what all this was building toward. I think, so for dust specifically, I feel like there were kind of two big, I guess three kind of big themes that I was bringing to light with that story and wrestling with a little bit. I think first off this idea, and this is very like Claire centric, but the idea of where does your identity come from? And does your identity have to be rooted in yourself and in your own view of yourself? Um, Like if she doesn't feel valuable, if she doesn't feel wanted and needed, if she feels like a burden, if she doesn't feel like she should even exist, does that mean that those feelings are true? Or can she root her feelings and her identity in someplace else? Which I think is something that um, I think is especially common for uh, for teens and for young adults as they're kind of trying to process who they want to be and who they are. But this is, is something that all of us battle with intrusive voices and trying to figure out are our emotions valid um, or true? And I suppose those are two different questions. <laughs> they are valid. They're not always true. So I think that was one of the big one of the big threads that I was tugging on is like, so if you have a whole story about a character who needs to learn her happy thought, but she's basically depressed because she has been mistreated and abandoned her entire life as a, as a foster kid, as someone whose parents basically didn't want her, as someone who lost her brother, who is the only person that she viewed as somebody who, who truly selflessly loved her. Um, like, how do you have a character like that find their happy thought? And one of Claire's biggest things is that she basically bought into this idea that like, if one person tells me that I'm wanted, then I can find my identity in that. And as soon as she loses that one person, whether it be her brother or Peter, all of a sudden she has no identity for herself. Like she has no foundation to stand on anymore, which means that she can't, you know, she just feels worthless. And so a big part of dust was pushing at that and saying, okay, well, where is your identity found? And there was this whole conversation that she has with Tiger Lily that was probably my favorite thing to write in Dust because I needed a way to communicate biblical truth and the idea of like finding our identity in Christ, but it's Peter Pan. So how do you do that? (laughs) And I didn't want to just give some sort of like pat answer. And so what I ended up doing is, so first off with Tiger Lily's culture, I decided to shift it from being Native American, which makes no sense and is not. Um, done very respectfully to that culture. And because of growing up overseas with a with a village of indigenous people myself, I was like, I know how to do this, or at least I know how to convey this to a certain extent. And so I ended up creating an indigenous culture that that lives on Neverland of these just these people with this beautiful dark skin. And they have um they have constellation silver tattoos. 
And I came up with this whole mythos of them basically believing in this God called the Ever One. And they believe that he writes messages in the stars to them because stars have a big part to play in the Peter Pan mythos. Um, and so Tiger Lily is sitting with Claire and she's explaining like these tattoos are who the everyone says I am. Like basically my identity is printed on my skin so that whenever I forget who I am, I can just look at it and see. And Claire is like, oh, how do I process that? And Tiger Lily tells her basically like you don't feel like you belong here because you weren't made for this world. But the world you were made for it and the, the purpose you were made for transcends past your feelings and your emotions. And that's where you need to find your identity. And that's like the whole core of, of her character arc and what she comes to learn. And so being able to weave that into, you know, a young adult book for, for teens and for people that love to read YA and in a Peter Pan story was, was pretty amazing. Um, so I think that was just the big, the big core of, of Dust specifically. And then with Shadow, which is a good deal darker and digs into just a lot of, a lot of kind of Repressed childhood trauma, Peter's whole deal, and this was something that's actually true to the original book that I found really fascinating, is that basically in the book, whenever Peter didn't like something, he would just immediately forget it. So um, Tinkerbell dies, he immediately forgets her. Wendy goes home, he immediately forgets her. Um, he meets Wendy's daughter, Jane, takes her to Neverland, brings her back, and then just stops coming back and forgets her. At one point in the book, he actually gets so annoyed and kind of like done with his current group of lost boys that he kills them all and then immediately forgets it. So this like this is in the original book? Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Wow, I've never his, read it. Oh, so, I've I've, I've read I've read it. Yes. It is uh, it, it is very quite grim dark. Quite grim yes. dark. Uh, it, which is why I'm curious, uh, Kara, real quick. I mean, how did you originally just stepping in real quick, how did yeah. you originally find what pirate maps led you to J.M. Barry's Peter Pan, the play, the book, the concept? Yeah. And uh, then I'll ask a little more how you began to explore a version of this world yourself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'll tie that back into Peter's arc. So um it was kind of more of like a random challenge than anything. Um, because I I like Peter Pan, but I've never been like a diehard fan probably because I had enough of an idea of who the character was that I was like, he's kind of a little brat and I kind of just oh, want to like, jerk. like yes. slap him. Yeah. <laughs> like he's a, he's a little jerk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's um, a prankster in the Disney version, but in the book, I mean, he, he is just, he's just a troll. Uh, he is, yeah. he is the worst excesses of truly a, a boy who refused to grow up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's a, he's a little brat. Yeah. And uh, I had a good friend who loves Peter Pan and, um, she had gone to London and she was standing in Kensington Gardens, sending me pictures of the Peter Pan statue. And she's like, uh -huh. why are there not more good Peter Pan retellings? And like, just because I always have so many ideas, I was like, well, if I ever wrote a Peter Pan retelling, I'd age Peter up a little bit. I'd make him take responsibility for his dang actions. <laughs> I'd set him against a character that I created who was the antithesis of everything Peter was, but had pixie dust. I would use pixie dust as a way to communicate mental health and um, like your your thought life and some of those pieces and just started just like spitballing ideas. And she's like, that's actually really good. And so we just kind of started brainstorming for fun. And I went to Mount Hermon that year, at a Christian writers conference, and I was pitching like four other projects, but I brought a one sheet for dust and I wrote like a little blurb. And I basically was like, would anybody even want this? Like, does anybody want a Peter Pan retelling? And so I just, I would pitch my other projects. And then at the end of the session, I'd slide the one sheet across the table and be like, so this isn't written at all, but like, would people even read this? And every single publisher I talked to unanimously loved it. And they were all like, send it to me when you write it, which is crazy. And I was like, well, I think I might have something here, um, but I have no idea how to do this. Timing was kind of interesting. We didn't end up getting that off the ground as quickly or, or in the time frame that I was expecting. 
skip forward two years, I still had ideas kind of rattling in around in my head. Um, I was agented at the time, but not contracted. And we were chatting with a couple of publishers about projects. And one of them wanted to see a list of other ideas that I had. So I sent them the list. They singled out Dust and said, this is really, really strong. Send us the full. And I was like, I literally have maybe two chapters written. And so I talked to my, my agent at the time and I was like, okay, so if I get five chapters written in the next two weeks, can we submit that? And if they like it, then I'll write the full. And she was like, sure. So I wrote seven chapters in a week because I had to rewrite Peter's chapters multiple times. I think I had probably eight to 10 rounds of edits in the following week, just stacked on top of each other to get these chapters as tight as possible. So they didn't read like an absolute first draft. And then we submitted those five chapters. Publisher loved them and said, okay, um, you know, take your time, but get us the full when you can, because we're really, really interested in this, Um, which is crazy. Like that doesn't happen. So then I spent six months-ish writing the rest of the novel, finished it, did my own passive edits on it. And then we submitted it and we had three or four different publishers that were all interested at the time. And then ended up going with Enclave because they ended up being the best fit for us. I wrote the book kind of blindfolded in the sense that I was like, there's a publisher who's interested. This is the book. I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> like, it's Peter Pan. Everybody has their own version of it. Like, how on earth do I even do this? So basically, I didn't watch anything Peter Pan related. I only read the J.M. Barry novel. And I sat down and I went, okay, this is crazy and weird, but I kind of like it. <laughs> so how can I take all these pieces and work with them together? Um, like, how can I take what I like about it and play off of those? Well, yeah, and I also have my interpretation of Peter Pan, as I mentioned before. It's largely shaped by the Disney interpretation, uh, which leads to my question. I think when I first saw Dust, it made me wonder, wait a minute, like, and is Peter Pan in the public domain? And so I did a little mm-hmm. research and I realized technically the play is mm-hmm. and the Walt Disney Corporation had to get permission from the copyright holder, which is the Great Ormond Street Hospital or Gosh, literally, that's their interpretation. <laughs> uh, J.M. Barry had a special relationship with that hospital. And so yeah. at least what I found is that spinoffs or sequels of Peter Pan are in the public domain, even if the original play is. So it is perfectly legal, apparently, to create your Peter Pan fan fiction or in your case, uh, an interpretation, an extension uh, sequel to that world. Is, how, how was it? How did you find that when you were starting to work on the story? Yeah, so I just I did research right off the bat to try and figure out kind of where where that was at. Yeah, and there's been so many Peter Pan retellings. I felt like kind of one of the core things that I wanted to do with mine is I felt like all of the Peter Pan or a lot of the Peter Pan retellings I saw changed Peter fundamentally, whereas I wanted to keep the fundamental Peter that people liked and the translation of the character that I connected with and yet expand him to actually become more likable instead of making him a full-on villain or a full-on good guy. Like he's an anti-hero and that's part of what makes him so interesting. Mm. And when I originally pitched the idea to my publisher, I was actually at Realm Makers and I was walking around and I wasn't in a position that I wanted to pitch Dust to Steve, but he just kept nudging me. And so finally he's like, so what are you working on? What are you working on? And I was like, um, it's a Peter Pan retelling with unreliable narrators and everybody is lying. And he's like, tell me more. <laughs> like, okay, Steve. <laughs> and yeah, ended up being the right partnership in the long run. But yeah, I really wanted to play off this idea of like, he's an anti-hero that is very selfish, but at the same time, isn't selfish because he necessarily wants to be mean, but because he forgets everything, he's selfish because he has no idea the lasting ramifications of his actions. And I had to make him a little bit more sympathetic than I think just the straight up character transported from Peter Pan, the book would have been in order for him to not be totally hateable. But this idea kind of of like, 
he has no idea the ramifications of what he's doing. So he just needs to be able to acknowledge that. And that's, that's basically the whole core of shadow is him. Um, he thinks that he's worked through it, but he just hasn't, he's like brushed the surface and still doesn't want to deal with it. And so it's him being slammed over and over again by like, you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this, like you need to create restitution here and actually grow. And he's fighting that so much the whole book long, but ends up having to realize that like growing up doesn't mean losing the magic. And that growing up doesn't mean losing Neverland, that there's a way actually to grow up in the sense of becoming someone who's a leader and trustworthy and willing to fight for this place and actually protect it and not be selfish and not only want his own best. And that in that way, he can grow up without fully losing what he wanted and what was important in the first place. So kind of figuring out this like middle ground. This seems like the best way to explore a character who I think fits the definition of a narcissist, at least the original Peter Pan. I mean, terms like this, just to recognize terms like this get thrown around a lot uh, in our cultural discourse, you know, gaslighting, narcissist, you know, all the personality disorders, uh, some accurately, some not. But I think that that definition does fit the original Peter Pan. And it completely explains the idea of him forgetting stuff, either Mm -hmm. because he's so self-focused or because Mm -hmm. he's traumatized or both. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I really resonate with the idea of him coming to a point where he can actually heal from that, but also mm-hmm. be held responsible for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's such a divide when people are describing whether someone is uh, wounded or traumatized and you know, as if that gets them off the hook for the responsible choices they make, even as a, as a consequence of that trauma uh, or narcissism or personality disorder or whatever. I think that our world and the human complexity is big enough to allow for both trauma that has been done to us and our own responsibility for how we've responded to that trauma. I I totally agree. And I think that like the beauty there is being able to identify and acknowledge either in yourself or in someone else, hey, trauma has created certain um, defense mechanisms and ways to process and cope that are not healthy. And what I need is to humbly acknowledge these are not healthy and get help to actually learn how to reprogram the way that I orient myself and the way that I react or or explode on other people. And a lot of that takes self-sacrifice. And I think that's where it gets hard because, you know, we're all selfish (laughs) and we don't want to actually have to self-sacrifice in order to um, grow in those areas. Um, And one of the biggest things with, with Shadow was realizing like Peter needs to sacrifice basically everything because this entire world he's built has been based on his own selfishness and it's it's literally killing everything he cared about like it's sucking the life out of this entire world and all the people that he loves and so i had to basically have him deconstruct his entire view of neverland and his entire view of, of childhood and all these different pieces break it down to the core of what it really was sacrifice what he thought he wanted and needed and then rebuild back up from there um, which is hard and difficult and sad and really intense at points. And I'm amazed that Enclave let me do the degree of things that I did in that book. Um, But it's also really powerful. And that's life. That's the process of anybody having to deal with the ramifications of their actions, making it right and growing and and moving forward. Now, my favorite Peter Pan retelling has got to be the 1991 movie Hook Mm -hmm. with Dustin Hoffman and Robin Williams. That's what I grew up with. I was 12, I guess, when that came out. So I was told as a kid, that that movie was based on a book by Terry Brooks. And I was a huge fan in middle school of the Shannara series. And then I'm like, wait, he wrote Hook? No way. And now I found out that he actually wrote a book based on the movie. So it's kind of the other way around. But that connection was really fun because I loved all the sort of genre and all of those books after that. 
it, it was, it's interesting how you said, you know, Peter Pan was always forgetting stuff. Mm-hmm. And in that movie, you know, he forgets mm-hmm. that he's Peter Pan <laughs> because yeah. he grew up. He, he left Neverland. He married Wendy. And then he, he became an adult that just forgot he was ever a kid. And then he's kind of rediscovering his childhood. But I like how your book is going into the theme that, hey, growing up doesn't mean you have to lose the magic. It doesn't yeah. mean you have to lose, uh, leave Neverland. I, I remember as a, as a teen watching that movie thinking, am I going to be like this guy when I grow up? Like, mm-hmm. am I going to be an adult that forgot he was ever a child mm-hmm. and is now kind of a crummy father because of that? And like the one scene in that movie that always sticks out to me is when Wendy is like, we only have five or six years with these kids and then yeah. they're gone. And I, I was always like, man, is that, is that how parenthood is really going to be? Um, but I, I love that in, in your book, you're exploring that theme. And you're like you, you said originally that you're exploring the whole idea of danger that, mm-hmm. that you grew up with actual real danger mm-hmm. and you're exploring that in your book, confronting a lot of darkness. And, and what I'm curious about is, you know, you, you show where the light shines in the darkness. So without mm-hmm. spoilers, you know, how, how are you showing that through your stories? How are you showing that light shines through even in the midst of darkness? Cause this, this is a theme, a theme I personally really love. Yeah. Um, when I was, um, when I was uh, around that same time, I, I watched hook and all this, I went to one of those caverns that's underground. It's like mm. a mile underground or something. And they do this demonstration where they turn off all the lights and it is like the darkest thing yeah. you've ever seen in your life. And then, you know, the guy just lights a little match or something and was like, see, like even one little light, like can't be snuffed out by all this darkness. Like so, every cave tour has that yeah, little right. stunt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, mine had a little twist in that my friend Kyle took his uh, little disposable camera, put it right in my face and clicked and then shot the flash like right in my eyes. And so I was like completely blind. <laughs> Ooh, tropes averted. So yes, I, I got trolled. Um, but that, that theme has always stuck with me that. That even even that camera flash, right? It mm-hmm. it was so bright because light always overcomes darkness. So, mm-hmm. how have you either portrayed that in your book, or how else do you kind of see that being portrayed? Yeah, I love I love themes of of light and darkness. I feel like they can be easily easily overused in like Christian fantasy. Um, but I felt like with dust, it made so much sense because you have like literal like liquid light in the pixie dust. So Claire's pixie dust is unique in that when it's very much uh, kind of um, it plays off her emotions. So when she's afraid or nervous or insecure or angry or hurt, um, when she's honestly, in a lot of ways, when she's hating who she is, her dust turns dark and ashen and it burns. And so it becomes something that's actually harmful. And so her dark thoughts create harm to the world around her. And then when she's thinking happy thoughts and when she's orienting her mind on other things and on good things and on selflessness and on helping and all these pieces, then her dust actually lightens. And not only does it allow her to fly, but it's actually more potent than a a pixie's dust because, I mean, she's also bigger, so she can create a lot more of it. Um, And uh, like, yeah, like literally lifts the Jolly Roger off the ground. Yeah. 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 So a big piece of that was just basically kind of digging into the idea of like, we are, our feelings are valid, but they're not always true. And we can orient ourselves and control our thoughts and that we have the ability to decide who we want to be and how we want to self-perceive and also how we want to perceive the world around us. And that that does have an impact not only on us, but also on the people around us and on our ability to help and serve and, um, you know, and our ability to even grow. I think that was a big theme in, in dust and shadow. Oh, yeah. So much darkness. Uh, shadow, a lot of the a lot of the thematic material is basically like pain and suffering that somebody has gone through that they have not been willing to identify and it leaking out in all these other ways that they don't even see. 
yeah, so there's a particular character that I probably won't spoil, um, who is still on Neverland, whose pain, because of Peter directly and also because of Claire, um, has basically created this actual like liquid um, darkness that's seeping into the entire island um, and is like sucking all of the life from it. And it's just like splintering apart. And he uh, is kind of like, in a lot of ways, the antithesis of Peter, or basically like a dark version of what Peter could become. There's a lot of this having to not not just look at someone and go, okay, their pain is causing all this destruction. We should just let them be and let them be in their little circle of destruction. But knowing how to safely reach out and help that person and pull them out of it and speak truth and let your own light and your own sense of um, just, I don't know, having a healthier mindset on something or reminding them of who they are, start to actually shift the flow of that darkness that's pouring out of them. Um, and in a lot of ways, Claire has to realize that while she can help to a certain extent, there's a lot of healing that she can't do for someone that they have to learn to do for themselves. But that even her being able to shed a little bit of light in this person's life has an impact. So there's just a lot of, there's a lot of those types of analogies, especially in shadow. And I think there's a lot of analogies of like, sometimes our light shines brightest when we give up what we think that we want and what we think we need in order to actually help us grow and help other people grow. This sounds like an amazing way to bring biblical truth of a particular mm-hmm application to people's emotional healing uh, to that world of Peter Pan. I'm not familiar with J.M. Barry or any of his uh, personal faith, although just looking at it, I'm not sure I would originally call Peter Pan. I wouldn't look at Peter Pan and say, oh, that's a Christian story right. or that's a Christian made story. I mean, obviously, uh, every decent story is going to include uh, broken reflections of God's beauty, truth, and goodness in that story, uh, whether or not it specifically mentions Jesus or conversion or specifically gospel elements. Mm-hmm. But this is a great way, I think, for Christians to do what many of us have always encouraged one another is to tell the world's stories, but in light of the gospel, uh, yeah. bringing out whatever reflections of gospel truth were in there and then not slapping a conversion call on it, uh, not just putting a little Jesus fish sticker on it like there, boom. It's Christian now, uh, but pulling those themes out of the story and then recontextualizing them uh, in the gospel, uh, almost deconstructing, uh, I would think, Mm -hmm. uh, the original story and then rebuilding it on a foundation Mm -hmm. that presumes uh, God's right to define reality, to define identity, Mm -hmm. and then shining that light into the darkness of all the other false identities or some of the trauma that we built up around ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Kara, this... uh... This thing you mentioned about our feelings are valid, but not always true and not always healthy in how, you know, this kind of unprocessed trauma can really cause chaos in someone's life. I think that's exactly true. Stephen has taught me this phrase uh, that I think he's learned from somewhere about maybe it's from foster care, Stephen, or something that like, if you don't heal what hurt you, you'll bleed on those who didn't cut you, Uh, you know, or just simply hurt people, hurt people and but there's healing that we can find in Christ. And that is, mm-hmm. that's the hope. You know, yeah. I, I think a lot of people, that, when, when people don't know the healing power of Christ, they get stuck in the hurt that they're going through and they think, mm-hmm. well, that's all that there is. And so I'm going to kind of make my identity around that. Mm-hmm. And I like that you're challenging that because identity is a huge thing now. And, and it's always, it's always a, a huge thing for teens. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the entire point of being a teenager is figuring out your identity. And yeah, our, our culture tells people, well, whatever is hurting you, that's your identity. And it's like, that's a really bad message. Like yeah. that, that it doesn't have to be that way. It, it becomes that way, I think, for a lot of people. But there is something greater than just the, the hurt that you've had. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. So Kara, where will you fly next in your creative journeys and how are you helping other storytellers uh, do similar things with their creations? Ah, oh, that's a good question. So yeah, like I said, Dust and Shadow are just a duology, so just two books. My next project, we are, uh, my agent and I are kind of waiting to see where it lands as far as the best, um, the best publishing house home, which may still be Enclave, but we're just kind of seeing what, um, yeah, seeing where this one ends up landing. Um, but this, I like to pitch it as like, it's like, it's about a phoenix and it's like Sleeping Beauty meets the Winter Soldier, but with a phoenix. So it's about a girl. <laughs> see if I can do this without saying too much. It's about a girl who's a phoenix. And she's basically been manipulated to be used as a weapon in the sense that like um, she's able to set off and explode instantaneously. And so her father has been manipulating her to walk into certain situations, explode and destroy things. And he's been telling her that she's helping to stop monsters. But the reality is that her her basically purpose as a phoenix is actually to eventually destroy the world. Her explosions are getting worse and worse. And so there's this group that's trying to stop her from destroying the world. So she is technically the villain of the story. But the big twist is that she's actually supposed to destroy the world because she's a phoenix. When she destroys it, she'll actually revive it. And so there's all these different unreliable narrators and nuances and different threads and people thinking that they're doing the right thing. But really, it's not actually how it's supposed to work. And there's all these different pieces. Um, trying really hard not to spoil stuff. So that's all I'm going to say. But a lot of fun. And it's uh, like contemporary fantasy. So set in the real world, um, but like a little bit, a little bit grittier. And then as far as what I'm doing to help other people, so I actually run um, a program called the Author Conservatory. Um, I co-run it with Brett Harris, who is the author of Do Hard Things. What I realized through um, publishing at a pretty young age, I was first published when I was 17 um, and then got my agent when I was 21. Dust came out when I was 23, I believe. Um, so I've been published pretty young uh, on the whole. And what I realized is that there is not a lot of really clear linear help for authors um, to learn how to become um, published. And then beyond that, it's really, really difficult for anyone to write a book and publish it and actually make money off of it. Like we make a pittance off of book sales. And so what Brett and I are really passionate about is teaching young writers how to not only write really good books and publish well and market their books well and reach their audience well, but actually also how to create an income stream of other side businesses tied into their writing, tied into their skill set, making what their time deserves for whatever they're doing and actually able to support themselves beyond just their writing. So yeah, I run the Author Conservatory, which our website is just authorconservatory.com. It's a three-year program. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. We're basically giving them all the tools that I wish I had had and just helping all of these passionate young people be able to pursue their goals and actually have a sustainable career. So yeah, that's, that's what I do. Well, that's fantastic. Where can people follow you uh, to Neverland and beyond on your social media platforms? Yeah, so I hang out a lot on Instagram. I'm at Kara Swanson Author. Um, and then also on Facebook, you can just find me at Kara Swanson or Kara Swanson, comma, author is my um, my page. And then I'm uh, technically on Twitter, though I do nothing there because um, I don't like starting fires. So uh, Kay Swanson Author um, on Twitter. There are some shadows and trauma on Twitter and a lot of yes. people who don't want to grow up. I can testify. I try to go into that rather perilous missionary field. Uh, and usually it's not good for me. So I also need to be more careful on the Twitter. Kara, thank you so much for joining us. Make sure to find all those social media links at lorehaven.com slash podcast for episode 78. Thanks so much, Kara, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was so wonderful. 
Well, Stephen, a lot of people like to fly with fairy dust, apparently, but I prefer dragons for getting around in the skies. And that brings us to our second sponsor, Dragon and Rider. This is a tabletop game that is currently on Kickstarter. It's fully funded, but they're going for a stretch goal. And here's the description of the game. Remember that scene in The Princess Bride where Vizzini is trying to figure out which goblet is poisoned? Are you the kind of man who put the poison in his own goblet or the goblet of his enemies? Well, imagine that mental puzzle, but as a team game where you not only figure out what your opponent is doing, but what your teammate is doing as well. In Dragon and Rider, you play as either the dragon or the rider, and you battle together against another dragon rider team. You have to mentally sync with your teammate while outthinking your opponents. But another way, Dragon and Rider is multiplayer rock, paper, scissors, but with all the upgrades and the fantasy trappings. The game fits in your pocket. It takes five minutes to learn, only 30 minutes to play. And it is discounted on Kickstarter until September 19th, 2021. Uh, and full disclosure, I'm a backer of this game. I think it's great. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And I, I love just simple games like this that you can just toss out on a table wherever you are and, uh, and play quickly. And you can find that link in the show notes for this episode or on our podcast sponsors page. Well, now let's fly over to the comm station and look at this new note from Speculative Faith commentator, not Leia, who left us a comment on episode 77. And she says, quote, well, isn't this all as clear as mud? For as much as this might be intended to serve as article zero or article 0.5, it still feels a bit reductionist. Oh, I got to cut in here just a little bit. Uh, well, <laughs> see, this is true to form, uh, for listeners who don't know, and not Leia is, I would say a friend to the Lorehaven project friend frenemy. I'm not sure, but, uh, she's always there with some pushback and some fun comments. So that's why we're engaging with this one here. And I've engaged with her many times before. Uh, I think she understands that. I, I think reductionist is an unfair term. Would it not be also fair to say minimalist? Uh, we didn't deal with it minimalistically, but it is minimalist to say that before you put on your hat as an author of stories or as a missionary or a preacher, as we discussed in episode 77, the Christian's chief end is to put on the God worshiper hat. That is our job one to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, that helps to put all the other gifts, all the other hats, the jobs that we wear, the callings that we practice in perspective. Yeah. So she talks about the hats metaphor and says, we all know that we all wear many different hats, but I don't feel the need to put a hierarchy on the hats but ask what each hat might bring to the discussion. But I am admittedly a follower of the postmodernist school of reading where it's all thrown in the pot and stirred until something falls out. And then you argue about what that thing is and what it means. Yeah. I think we both disagree with this one just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Zach, no surprise yeah. to any of our listeners, but it is a gentle, I hope gospel based disagreement. I do feel a need to put a hierarchy on the hats because God feels the need and defines the need uh, to define the human purpose. Uh, you can think postmodernly about all these different callings and everybody just get together and try to figure out what's best, but according to what standard? Uh, Christians, those who follow the scripture, that is, gospel Christians, biblical Christians, believe that God defines the standard and that if you're an adopted child of Jesus Christ, then you have certain responsibilities, not out of obligation or duty, but out of delight in him. And as the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and delight in him, enjoy him forever. That's why I emphasize enjoyment so much in these kinds of discussions. Not Leah continues by saying, quote, also, I might argue that stories are not necessarily a deep-seated want 
in and of themselves that we have a deep-seated want for meaning, and we largely achieve that by means of the stories we tell ourselves. And also, is deconstruction becoming a new negative buzzword like canceling? Why? Admittedly, I'm biased because I love deconstruction. End quote. Yeah, I'll respond to that last one first. Like, I'm okay with deconstruction. If the house is rotten, it's got to go. But again, how do you define rot? How far do you go with the deconstruction? Do you deconstruct the foundation? Do you go further? Do you deconstruct the mud? Do you deconstruct the bedrock? Do you deconstruct gravity? You know, uh, there's some hidden moral standard that everybody uses when it comes to deconstructing or postmodernism or any of that stuff. Uh, I prefer that we show our work rather than pretend that we're all just getting along uh, with, the, with the moralities that we hide uh, underneath the textbook. Uh, the first thing there, she talks about, we have a deep-seated want for meaning. Uh, we largely achieve that by means of the stories we tell ourselves. Well, again, meaning according to whom? Uh, this isn't a necessarily an apologetics podcast, but uh, an apologetics podcast could go nuts with this. Uh, this is kind of a classic humanist type statement there. I'm sure that applying a label to it uh, might bother some people, but that's meant to be a compliment, I think. You know, this is the idea that we've talked about, Zach, when we talk about science fiction, kind of this classic science fiction trope of, well, this is how humans are. This is what humans are made to do. You know, we strive to better ourselves and to understand our place in the universe and life and death. And we just need to understand that that's part of the natural course of human development. And the Captain Picard speech goes on and on and on uh, while Captain Kirk is out uh, punching something. This is something that Christians answer with a direct worldview foundation. We answer that based in scripture. We say, no, scripture says that this is the meaning of life. And this isn't just an alternative narrative to everyone else. Everyone is arguing for their meaning. And if stories give us ways to explore the meaning, then how do you know which one is best? Uh, this isn't just a game. Uh, people will go to war over what they've concluded is the meaning of life. And if you've decided that this is the meaning, then you better be convinced of it. I think that stories do help us to sort those out. Uh, but I think ultimately you do need a meaning that is based on a meaning giver. Meaning, I think, is just another way to say purpose. And again, I go back to that purpose that's derived from Scripture. Our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the Christian answer uh, leading to a lot of other answers. Well, I appreciate that Natalia says at the outset, that she is a fan of postmodernism. And I think, okay, if you're a fan of that, you are going to kind of hold to these other attitudes and ideas, uh, especially about deconstruction. And yeah, I'm just going to say I'm not a fan of deconstruction because I'm not a fan of postmodernism. I, I think it takes you to bad places. I think it ultimately takes people to deconversion. And so am I making a slippery slope argument? Perhaps, but it is what I see in practice happening. I'm more of a fan of the Bereans in Acts 17, where it says they were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if Paul said was true. So I'm a fan of using scripture as the guiding principle for everything that we're examining. I just like the, the other phrase that's in uh, the epistles where it says, test everything and hold on to the good. So I think we should test things. I think we should examine them. But if scripture is not the bedrock, then I, I think we're, we're lost. Um, and, but, you know, again, th this comes from my, my view where I'm very much like the Apostle Peter, who when in John 6 and Peter says, you have the, you have the words of eternal life, where else are we going to go? And that is exactly my attitude because I've, I've followed a lot of philosophies before Christianity and I've, they, they got nothing. You know, they, they have nothing that is eternal or solid. 
or dependable. God's word is the rock that undergirds us. I try to let scripture be the authority and God be the authority. And that means it's going to question me, you know, more than I need to question what my pastor is saying or what the Southern Baptist church or whatever. The most important thing I need to do is test myself. Amen. And agreed, Zach, Uh, particularly the person who has the old bumper sticker. It says question authority. That is itself an authoritarian statement. (laughs) The person who wears that bumper sticker on their car is still following the authority of the rules of the road. Uh, They are not questioning every authority. Uh, It just sounds like a a really rambunctious, uh, rowdy statement for rascally rebels. No one actually applies that in every part of life. Uh, As Notlea says, though, There's a lot to unpack in these little side bits about people trying to gain authority by the teacher or the evangelist or the author and how that relates to an authoritarian culture. Uh, That's a quote from her, and that I actually do agree with, and we got into that in our episode 77. Uh, Authority can be a good thing. God is the ultimate authority, capital A, and that is the ultimate good. Human authorities carry some legitimacy, whether it's the government or a, a pastor Uh, or parents in their family. And yet there's a lot of authoritarian abuse. There's a lot of abuse of authority. So I understand that that would give people uh, a bad taste with the idea of authority. But all that means is, is that you're going to try to be your own authority or boss others before they boss you. And then it just becomes power abuse all around. You're trying to fight fire with fire. It's not going to work. Uh, Somebody's going to have to serve somebody. You may as well just trace that idea of authority back to its ultimate origin in God. And its application for readers and fans is, first, not to try to be an authority on fiction as an author or an evangelist. Uh, Those are legitimate callings with legitimate authority coming from God's word, especially if you are an evangelist or a pastor. But first, please focus on the delight. Jesus came to serve. Uh, It is the person who tries to be first who ends up being last. Uh, You may as well try it the Jesus way being last so that you may be first Uh, the person who is the most eager fan most eager to lose herself or himself in the world of the story is probably most likely to succeed as an author if they're called to create those stories and the same goes for someone who wants to use these stories to connect with friends and share the good news of the gospel that may be found in the story uh, whether reflected dimly or overtly Uh, if you're enthusiastic about it uh, that is itself going to be contagious to your friend that's the pragmatic argument uh, but the, the biblical argument is that God calls us to that kind of humility. He calls us to worship him and delight in him first before we try to be the big leader. So the fact is we all worship something or someone. And what we're saying is while you're worshiping something, let's, let's worship Christ because he's ultimately worthy of all of our worship. Amen. To feedback on that episode or this one, you can email us podcast at lorehaven.com. You can also go to lorehaven.com slash podcast and use the feedback form. Send us a note or look us up on all the socials. Just search Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for Lorehaven. You can find us that way. Next on Fantastical Truth, this month marks the 20th year anniversary of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks in the United States. Maybe you dimly recall these terrible events, but Zach and I remember them quite well. We also recall the stories and other images that we used trying to understand how people could do this and working through the trauma from that event. We will explore not just September 11 and similar events going on now, but the greater question of how we use fantastic fiction to process real wars and global trauma. Meanwhile, whether or not you can fly, whether or not you have happy thoughts or believe in Neverland, 
or maybe need to learn to grow up while still keeping the good of fantasy. Let's make sure that we are founding all of this on the truth of God's word as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. 